He uh, shows up in the hospital where he's in surgery, and the surgeons tell him that he was an inch, an inch away from being paralyzed for the rest of his life. And they tell him that his son is going to uh, be in recovery for months. This is going to take a while. And so he's hanging out at the hospital for the next few weeks, and it comes up to Christmas Day. He walks outside on Christmas Day, and he hears the church bells ringing, and it inspires him to write this poem that would become that Christmas carol. And I just want to read you a few of the lines. This is what he says. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. To men. He wrote this poem to describe the tension between our hurt and our hope, right? And so maybe you're like Henry today, where you, you, you kind of look at this world and, and, you, and you've walked through some really painful things and, and you're realizing there's this tension between what I'm singing about in Christmas and what I'm seeing in my life, right? We're singing about joyful laughter and celebration, and then what I'm seeing in my life is pain and loss. What we're singing about is anticipation and hope, and what I'm experiencing and seeing in my life is sadness and grief. How do I make sense of that? There there seems to be this widening gap between what I'm singing and what I'm seeing. That's what Advent is all about. Advent is this season in the church calendar where we are celebrating and anticipating and at the same time lamenting. There's this tension of of living in the weariness of this fallen world. And so today we're beginning this new series for Advent, and we're calling it just that, A Weary World Rejoices. Advent is all about waiting in this weariness, waiting in the tension of things are not the way they should be, yet I have hope that they will one day. And so now we're looking at Luke's gospel for the next four weeks, and we're looking at just the first few chapters, these birth narratives, these stories of Jesus entering into the world. And when God shows up into the world, his people had been waiting, waiting for a long time. God's people at this point were waiting for 400 years in silence, 400 years without any prophets any visitation from God, no, no message, nothing. They, they were waiting in silence. And then God breaks that silence with a man named Zechariah. And Zechariah, when God comes to him and, and the silence is broken, Zechariah is in a moment of hurt and pain. He's living in that tension. And so that's what I want to look at today, this gift of hope that God gives to Zechariah and to us. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first point I want to look at is a heavy hurt, a heavy hurt. And I'll preach a little bit quicker today since we had our installation time. But a heavy hurt. Let's begin in verse 5. Look at what it says here. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So now, right off the bat, we're introduced to this couple. 
we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah is a priest. He's one of the 8,000 priests that are estimated in, in Israel at the time. And so he's, he's got this in, important role, but he's also got this incredible wife. Elizabeth is an incredible woman. Uh, as, as you start to, unsee, or start to unpack the, the story of her life here, and we're told right off the bat that Elizabeth is actually from the priestly family herself. And so this would have been a rare situation where somebody from a priestly family marries someone who's a priest. And so it's kind of like a double blessing in their culture. They would have seen it as this is the holy couple. That this is the couple who God must show his favor towards because of their background and their culture and, and where they come from. In fact, Luke describes them as blameless and righteous. Right? And in the context, it's not, it's not saying that they're sinless. Right? Nobody in the Bible but Jesus is sinless. What it's saying is a blameless life was a life that you orient your, God, your, your life towards God. Well, you're pointing yourself towards him in all of your ways. And so, in other words, you could say that they loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's who Zechariah and Elizabeth were. That They were described like Job was. Job was described in the Old Testament as blameless and upright, one who feared God. That's this couple. And so they're blessed, they're blameless, and yet they're barren. They're barren. Look at verse 7. It says, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, here's where the tension enters. Their blamelessness makes it hard to understand their barrenness. In other words, in their culture, the idea was, if you were faithful, then you would be fruitful. If you were faithful with God and you did all the things that God had said you should do, you would be fruitful in your life. You should be prospering. You should be thriving. And one of the main ways that they thought that that would happen was through physical children. And so people in their culture, and even today, there's still kind of this stigma that if you don't have children, something must be wrong with you. Now, this text speaks against that as loud as you can hear. Because what's happening here is you're, you're starting to see the breakdown in their, their formula, their, their deal. In other words, if you're faithful, God will make you fruitful. But here it is. They are faithful. They are blameless. And yet they're not fruitful. They have no child. They would have looked at this and they would have thought, the math isn't mathing, Right? The, the deal isn't working out. I made a deal with God that if I do all the right things, then my life should be the way I want it to be. I should get all the things that I deserve. But what happens when the deal doesn't work out? What happens when you made a deal with God and he didn't keep his end of the bargain? Listen, here, here's where I want to pause for a second. Deals with God create hurt, not hope. Deals with God, they, they create a deep hurt, not hope in your life. And many of us, maybe you realize this or not, but, but you view God as this business deal. You put in and you get out. You invest and you get a return on your investment. You sow and you reap, right? There's this idea that if I do the right things, God will then do the things that I want him to do back in my life. And in fact, it's a subtle uh, prosperity theology, if you want to call it that. It's, and many of us in this church, if you've heard that terminology, you, you may even laugh at that or, or despise that kind of thinking. But to be honest with you, many of us are guilty of it. 
There's this subtle prosperity theology that, that believes if I do the right thing, God will then do what I ask him to do and what I want him to do. We've made deals with God. And here's how you know you made a deal with God. Your despair reveals it. Your despair reveals it. In other words, God, I made a deal with you about my marriage. If, if I did all the right things in my marriage, if I, if I said the right things and, 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 and served my spouse and, and did all the you know, things that the church told me to do, then my marriage should turn around. It should be healthy. It should be whole. It should have all the right things. And it hasn't. Or God, I made a deal with you about my children. If I raise them in the church and I teach them the word of God and I pray for them, then they should turn out in the way that I desire them to turn out. And they didn't. See, hurt enters in when you realize that God didn't seem to keep your end of the deal. Hurt enters in when you realize that my blamelessness produced barrenness. What do you do with that? When the kids don't turn out the way you thought, when the job doesn't turn out what you prayed for, when the struggle with sin continues to be the way it was 10 years ago, it doesn't seem like anything is changing. It doesn't seem like anything is getting better. It seems like it's staying the same. But trying to treat God like a deal maker, that's what's behind our despair. There's this, this subtle, hidden prosperity thinking that's, that's couched in, in hard work values. It, it, it's couched in, in, in this uh, you know, cultural idea of what it means to be a Christian. And it has harmed our relationship with God because we have no room for a relationship with a God who won't make deals with us. He won't make deals. See, God isn't our ticket to prosperity or thriving or, 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 or success or whatever you think it might be. God is not a prosperity ticket. He's a person. He's a person who, who has a greater plan than any deal you could ever make with God. He has a greater plan for your marriage, for your relationships, for your career, for your battle against sin. He has a better plan for your life that does not include whatever deals you've made with him. But it's greater. It's greater. And so I want to challenge us this morning before we move on. What, what if the reason God hasn't kept your end of the deal or, or your idea of the deal is because he's doing something greater in you? than what you want him to do for you? What, what if he's working in ways that you can't even imagine? See, the life of faith is saying, I'm, I'm going to try to locate God's work in my life, even though I can't see it. I'm going to try to listen for how God might be working, even in my barrenness. What is he doing in my pain? See, Zechariah, he hasn't quite got there yet. And so Zechariah's heart has, has beginning, or is beginning to harden. Let's look at that next. The second point, a hardened heart. Look at verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now this is fascinating because priests in their time would wait their whole life for this opportunity to try to 
to offer incense in the temple. And many priests never even got the opportunity. Remember, there's thousands of priests, and they had this rotation. And so in order to try to make it fair, they just cast lots. It's kind of like rolling dice. And if you got it, you got it. If you didn't, you didn't. But if you got it, it was only once in your life. And so you can imagine Zechariah. Here's this man who's blessed. He's blameless. He's done all the right things. And he still doesn't have a child. And people are looking at him with shame and reproach. And he still doesn't have the opportunity to offer incense. I mean, at this point, he's old and wrinkled. He, he, he's an elderly man who hasn't had the opportunity he'd been waiting for. And then the dice roll, and it comes to him. He's chosen. The lot falls to Zechariah, and this is probably the best day of Zechariah's life. He's so excited. He's anticipating this moment. The day comes and he's got all his priestly garments on and he walks to the temple and there's people and crowds in the courts praying for him, excited for him. This is his moment. He walks into the temple and he's shocked by what he finds. There's an angel that shows up. And I don't know about you, but when you see an angel, all the people who see an angel in the Bible, they fall on their face and they cry out in fear. And so usually the angels, the first thing they say is, fear not. And sure enough, Zechariah is afraid. And the angel Gabriel comforts him with this good news in verse 13. Look at what he says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. I mean, what sweet words to the suffering. Your prayer has been heard. I mean, someone needs to hear that today. Your prayer has been heard. This is what Gabriel says to him. He says, I know you've been praying your whole life. You've been asking God. You've been seeking God. And I want you to know that God wasn't looking the other direction. God wasn't ignoring you. God wasn't forgetting about you. God wasn't working on something else and he'll get to you when he gets to you. God was listening the whole time and he loves you and hears the answer to your prayer. And let me tell you, his answer is better than all your prayers you've prayed. Because this son that he's going to give to, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth won't just be an ordinary son. He will become John the Baptist, who will be the sign of the Messiah. He will be the forerunner of Christ. He will be the one who ushers in this new kingdom that is to come. Jesus is going to come on the heels of this son, John the Baptist. And so... Gabriel tells him this incredible news, and you might think Zechariah is going to be overwhelmed with joy and excitement, but look at how he responds in verse 18. He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Do you hear it? How shall I know this? He almost quotes Abraham in the Old Testament. If you know Abraham, Abraham was given this incredible promise by God, and Abraham asked God, how am I going to know this, that I can have a son? Because Abraham was old, and his wife was old, and now Zechariah is in the same situation that Abraham was in. And I guarantee you, Zechariah as a priest, he knows the story of Abraham. He probably teached Bible studies. He, he may have preached sermons about Abraham. He probably told his friends, oh, you should trust God for the impossible. Trust God to do the things you can't see. But now, it wasn't advice for someone else. It was Zechariah's life. Yeah, yeah. 
Zechariah was in the middle of the barrenness. Zechariah was in the middle of this promise that didn't seem to match his life. It didn't match up with the hurt he was feeling. It didn't match up with the pain he had experienced. He's trying to understand, how could you give me that promise? Look at us. We're old. His heart and heart had been given over to doubt. How could this be true? See, hurt without hope hardens your heart. If there's this hurt in your life that you haven't dealt with with hope, it's going to harden over time, and you're going to hear good news, and it's going to sound ridiculous. Now, pause for a second. Doubt can be healthy. I want you to hear that. Doubt can be healthy. In fact, in Jude 22, uh, this is great. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because doubt is natural. As we're trying to wrestle with hard things and ask questions of our faith and not just blindly accept things, we we want to work through those things. We want to wrestle with our questions. We want to take them to God and whatever it may be, I want to ask God in His presence, how does this make sense? I mean, if you pray the Psalms, that that is 90% of the Psalms. It's just complaints and questions. If you want to have a great prayer life, just ask questions and complain to God. It'll be great. But sometimes doubts can become dangerous when they're demanding. When they go from, God, I'm going to wrestle with you about this, to, God, I'm going to demand from you an answer. I'm going to demand from you that you prove yourself to me. I'm going to demand from you that you do what I've told you to do. That's when it becomes dangerous. And listen, I think behind our demands, there's this fear, this underlying fear that I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want to be hurt again. I've tried to put my faith in Jesus. I've tried to to trust him in the hard times. I've tried to, to give him all the strength I had, all the faith I had, and it didn't work. It didn't work. I was disappointed I was, I was lost. I was confused. And so now we look at our situation and we look back at our past and we think it looks a lot like that time, right? It looks a lot like the last time when my heart was just as barren, when my marriage was just as barren, when my soul was just as barren. Can God really be trusted? Can he be trusted like I've trusted him before? Let me ask you this morning, have you let your heart be hardened by hurt? Have you let your heart be hardened by hurt? See, some of us have moved from healthy doubt to demanding doubt. We've moved from this healthy wrestling with God to now I'm demanding from God and it's hardening us. Maybe you've been working through some really difficult times in your family right now. Maybe you've been working through some difficult financial situations or, or you've got a, an addiction issue that just keeps coming back. And, and these times in the holidays bring up all the past and they bring up all the pain and you're struggling right now. You're wondering, can I trust God in the middle of this? I want to tell you this morning as we're getting ready to close, the, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of this text is that grace comes to us in that moment. Grace doesn't come to us because we've got it all together and we've figured it out and we know how to move past this issue. Grace comes to Zechariah at his darkest moment. When he's confused and doubting and doesn't want to believe, he refuses. Grace enters in. And this transforms his life and our life. This is the last point. 
a healing hope. There's this healing hope that comes his way. Look at verse 19. It says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I love what Gabriel says in response. He says, if you want my resume, here it is. I've been in the presence of God. Right? You don't want to believe me, but listen to what I've experienced. I've been with God, and this is what your maker says. He says, this promise is true. You can take it to the bank. And so because Zechariah doesn't believe, Gabriel also gently rebukes him, and he says, okay, you don't believe the promise You're going to have to be quiet for a little while until the child comes, and then you're going to see how this works out. And so Zechariah is not able to speak. It's this sign that that he's supposed to receive. He's not supposed to work for it. He's supposed to be quiet and receive that this gospel, this good news message is going to be a message of faith. It's going to be a message that's received not by faithful living, but by trusting faith. And so in the midst of Zechariah's doubt, at his lowest spiritual moment, Elizabeth conceives, just like Gabriel said. And this is what she says in verse 25. She says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Her joyful celebration echoes all the women of the Old Testament who come in her line. You can hear Sarah rejoice over Isaac. You can hear Rachel give thanks for Joseph. You can listen to Hannah cry out for Samuel. And here we have it again. God has done it again. He has done the impossible. The God of the resurrection has brought life into a barren womb. He's brought life where there was no life. But this time, in the face of doubt, He's done it despite his hardened heart. See, hope, listen, hope heals hearts that can't heal themselves. Hope heals hearts that have no opportunity to heal themselves because that's the way the gospel works. The gospel always works this way. Romans chapter 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, still doubting, still fearful, still at our lowest, still unable, still ungodly. God steps in through Christ at the right time. God didn't wait for us to believe. He didn't wait for us to work. He didn't wait for us to earn. He fulfills his promised salvation through his promised son. That's how he works. He is bearing out his promise through a barren womb, this time a virgin womb. See, Jesus is born to live for us. Jesus is born to die for us. He went to the cross for the doubting. He went to the cross for the barren, for the shameful, for the guilty. This is the God we trust. This is the gift that God gives. It's the hope that heals. It's the hope that transforms. But it's a hope that only comes by gift. By gift. In September of 1939, uh, German troops invaded a place called Pilsko, Poland, and there was a 15-year-old girl there named Gerda Wiseman. And Gerda and her family were uh, pushed out and had to go into hiding for about three years. And somehow, some miraculous way, they survived in hiding for three years, but eventually they got caught. And when they got caught after that time, they were separated. Her mom went to a death camp, and Gerda goes to a concentration camp to then spend the next three years suffering in this concentration camp. By the time she was rescued by Allied troops three years later, 
she was just a 68-pound skeleton. 68 pounds. And now if you go to the, to the Holocaust Memorial in Boston, Massachusetts, that's there today, uh, there's six glass towers. And if you look at the glass towers, they represent different things about the Holocaust. And there's six towers because uh, there were six million Jews that were killed in six different concentration camps. And so they represent various things. Five of the towers represent the suffering and the pain and the tragedy that they experienced. But the sixth tower represents hope. It represents that in the midst of that pain and that, that struggle and the atrocities that they experienced, there was hope. And on that sixth tower, there's a little short story authored by none other than Gerda Wiseman. And I want to read you, it's just a few sentences. It says this, Ilse, a childhood friend of mine, once found a raspberry in the camp and carried it in her pocket all day to present it to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry and you gave it to your friend. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry and you gave it to your friend. See, the true nature of a gift is what you give up to give it. It's what you give up to give it. See, one raspberry isn't much unless it's all you have. And then if it's all you have, then it's everything. And what I want you to hear is when God gives us the gift of his son, Jesus, the Bible tells us it's his only begotten son. God isn't giving to you his leftovers. He isn't giving out of his abundance of, of, of second persons of the Trinity. God is giving himself. He is giving himself his only begotten, his only power for change, his only love and mercy for sin, his only healing and hope for pain, his only for us. And it's this gift that he gives to us that heals our brokenness, that heals our doubt, that heals our shame and guilt. Do you need the healing gift of hope today? This is the hope of Christmas. This is the hope that we await and we long for and we anticipate. And so maybe this morning you're living in the tension between your heart and your hope. I don't know what that may look like for you. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship or you're struggling with depression or despair. Maybe you're struggling with confusion or, or a lack of purpose. I have no idea what you're walking through right now, but I know God knows what it is. And I know that whatever it is, he can step into your pain and bring healing. That's what Jesus came to do. He enters in. He enters in to heal. And it's the greatest gift that God has ever given. It's a gift that's not based on us. It's not a gift that we work for or we try hard to achieve. It's a gift that we simply receive. And it's the healing gift of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the gift of yourself. We're so grateful that you offered up your life in our place the God-man, God becoming human flesh, taking on all that we are so that you can earn for us a full salvation. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to remember hope in the midst of our hurt. Help our pain not be louder than your promises. Help us to really lean into you and wrestle with you, not in a demanding way, but in a hopeful, humble way that we might find in you the great 
I am, the great Savior of sinners like us. Lord Jesus, may you be lifted up for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning.